So we could definitely not do our ministry without Radius. So thank you very much, Radius. We, we value you guys. Really, I won't get tears in my eyes. I don't want this opportunity because it does. It means that much to our families. They are very helpful in every day. The partnership with uh, Radius has been life-changing. A Radius Salute Partnership is a day-to-day -day partnership. They're in our schools. Uh, we have a lot of our district leadership meetings in the Saluda campus. The partnership has changed lives. The money that we give to Radius, we're giving right back to the community. Clothes, coats, jackets, blankets, meal bags are provided to a lot of our kids, funeral expenses, um, night to shine. Even dentist visits. We've had several students that have never gone to a dentist before. The South Carolina School Board Association has an award called uh, Champions of Public Education. The School Board Association recognized uh, Radius Saluda's uh, contributions and uh, gave Radius Saluda this award. This goes hand in hand, just showing just how um, they are true partners uh, with us. Give Hope has changed lives, and again, just another example how Radius um, partners with us so we all can be the hands and feet of Jesus. Hey, hope, yeah, I hear you. Hopefully, if you've been here for a while, you'd be really proud of that. There used to be a group of 20 people right here at Radius Lexington that drove in from Saluda, and then uh, over the course of time, we felt like we ought to start a church, and we call it Radius Saluda, and um, it has grown up, and they are known in their community as folks who care for others. They do it specifically uh, in this case, through the school system. So when we talk Give Hope at the end of the year, we're excited about stuff like that, stuff that gives us this ability to really have trust and confidence in the community. We call Trey, our campus pastor out there, we call him the mayor of Salute. He knows everybody. He's everywhere, and we're super proud of their good work out there. So if you uh, have been with us for a little while, at this time of year, we do something we call Give Hope. That's what that was all about. And this year, we decided to come up with a little jingle. We thought we'd teach the kids about Give Hope, so we went give one, give for fun. I get all the credit for the poetry invested there, uh, one and fun. You got the rhyme thing. Like we, we really were thinking about this verse in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which talks about a cheerful giver. It's just really hard to rhyme with it. Like tearful didn't seem like a good thing. Beerful definitely didn't seem like a good thing. Like we thought trying to, so we, we would give one, give for fun, and it was kind of like it was this like good little thing we were doing for the kids, and then it just kind of got on me over the course of the last couple of weeks. And so today, I thought I would take what's got on me and let it get on you. I've been asking myself this question as we've been trying to teach the kids how much fun you can have by being generous. I've had to ask myself, am I a cheerful giver? Like. Am I a cheerful giver still? Right? Like, I've known Jesus a long time, and um, I've had some great joy out of being generous, but is that still true about me? And I've just been wrestling with that, wrestling with that. And for those of y'all that have known Jesus a long time, I hope to let you wrestle with it with me. Like, like it's, it's just part of, that's what we do here. And if for those of y'all that are brand new to knowing Jesus, like, hopefully by reading this passage of Scripture, you'll get a little peek into what is a cheerful giver. Because the Bible's going to give us a definition. And, and then for some of y'all that may not even believe in Jesus and somebody dragged you to church this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here you are. Like, like, 
Why be a cheerful giver? Why in the world is this even the discussion? All that will come out of this passage in the Bible in the book of 2 Corinthians. The journey for us began, the cheerful giver journey began uh, after growing up in a home with a dad, in my case, that was a cheerful giver. As a matter of fact, like if you know my dad's generation, my dad's 82, like hugging and um, saying I'm proud of you wasn't exactly a part of vernacular, right? Like, I love you, maybe not. Like those, those were just weren't things that were done a lot by that generation and generally not a real emotional generation, at least on the man side of the deal. And so that, that's the house I grew up in, super stable, loving home, knew my dad was for me. Like all those things were true. It just wasn't a very emotional. But occasionally when I'd see my dad emotional, it would be when he was being generous. It was weird. Like he would be like just so full of joy when he had the opportunity to take some of his hard-earned cash and pass it along to somebody else in need. That just became, like, that's, that's where I grew up. That's what I saw. And so when I say, what is a cheerful giver? I actually grew up seeing it. I looked right at it. I saw in this, this man that I admired and wanted to emulate and be like, and this, this one thing out of life, when he was able to give, sometimes to us, sometimes to folks that were poor, there's, there's generally like this giving that I didn't know about. My mom, mama's in the room, you know how this is. She'd leak it to us a little bit because she's proud of her husband. And she'd be like, your dad's out loud, like, you know, and, and, and she would, she'd kind of give it to you in little pieces. And you just knew that for this, this man in my house, one of the best parts of life was giving his stuff away. And then I got married. And I got a job. I had to be there at 5 a.m. That's hard earned money, right? Like, like I, I, I got a job. And I, I got some money. And the next thing you know, me and Cheryl, we're, we go out to eat once a month. Occasionally, I run by Taco Bell like a couple times a month because they had them tacos for 29 cents. But anyway, uh, we, we go for a regular meal. And we'd eat. And at the end of the meal, come tip time. <laughs> and we had to figure out who we were. That used to be my dad's responsibility. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I was a kid and I wanted to be generous, I'd go, hey, I want dad. I got this great opportunity for you, right? Like I'd introduce my dad to the opportunity, and now all of a sudden it's my income, my family. What are we going to do with the waitress at the restaurant? And we had, uh, man, Cheryl and I had a couple wars in a couple restaurants, like how much to tip. Anybody go through this process? Like we, we're arguing about how much to tip. It didn't come to blows. We didn't go in the parking lot or anything, but like we're, we're going back and forth at the table on how much how generous are we going to be? It was this really interesting part of life. And for a first year or two, we worked through it. Like, when do we give? How do we, how do we give at the church that we go to? How's that going to work out? We had to work through all of that. And then what began to happen with Cheryl and I is we got aligned on the subject. For our family, this became a place of great joy. And over the course, we've been married 34 years. Some of our very best stories in life have been giving our stuff away. And so I'm asking myself this question as I'm trying to motivate the kids to give a dollar last week and to give for fun this week, am I still a cheerful giver? And be quite honest with you, it's not been a real fun process. What I've begun to discover is I'm still a giver, but oftentimes I'm moving so fast that I don't slow down and make sure my heart is aligned with generosity. Like I'm just doing it. I'm afraid for you and me in this Christmas season, the next seven, eight days 
of Christmas. Like, we're going to miss it? As we come in today, I know some of y'all are like, I'm here. You should be proud of me. This is a crazy time of year. I am. Thank you for being here, right? Like, but it's raining outside. Like, all of that's going on, but like, like there's this thing that we just kind of get running, and some of this, this time becomes so stressful, and I got to get so much done, and I, I got all these gifts to get. We don't even enjoy the process. I really want you to enjoy the next seven days, and as you read this past passage uh, with me, we're going to see that God, through the Apostle Paul, really wants us to enjoy life by encouraging us to be joyful, uh, cheerful givers. This is a, a, a book in the New Testament. So again, to explain, we, we just went through Timothy. A guy named Paul wrote it to a younger man named Timothy. In this case, Paul's writing to a church in a town t- called Corinth. He wrote them multiple letters. We know two of them were put in the New Testament. So they call this... 2 Corinthians. It's not the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote many, but it's the second one in the Bible. So we call it 2 Corinthians. And it's a fairly long letter where he's giving them a variety of instructions. It would be like if there was uh, 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 the Apostle Paul today, he'd write it to us, the Lexingtonians, right? And, and we'd open it up, and this is the second letter. We'd be open it. We'd read through it. And about halfway through, he begins to I don't know, touch on. It's two chapters long, so it'll be like two written pieces of paper. It is the longest section in the Bible, particularly the New Testament on generosity. And he writes out um, these instructions to these folks in Corinth. What he's trying to do, it's his Give Hope project, right? He is raising money for folks in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a really poor part of the world at the time. Paul's been to Jerusalem. He knows folks in Jerusalem. He particularly knows the Christians in Jerusalem. And he is, everywhere he goes, these churches that he started, he's raising money for the folks that are poor in Jerusalem. So it's his, it's his one, once a year give hope campaign, if you will. I'm stretching that a little bit. But like, it's just a camp. He's doing it one time. This isn't something he's asking them to do forever. And so he's in a place in the world called Macedonia. If you know your Bible very well, you've read the book of Philippians. The town there is... Philippi, that's in Macedonia. There's a town called Berea mentioned in Acts. That's in Macedonia. There's two books in the Bible named after this town, Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. Those three towns, he's in those towns, and that's a poor part of the world as well. Not as poor as Jerusalem, but poor. In our world, this would be like uh, the Apostle Paul is out at Pillion and Gaston and Swansea, and he's writing to us over here in the 29072 in Corinth. That's what he's doing. Like, like, it ain't like, like, they're not poor like a lot of the world, but they have less cash than us. So he's over in Macedonia, and he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. And he says, I'm about to leave Macedonia. I'm about to leave Pillion. I'm about to come to Lexington. And here's how, how it reads. He says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. I love this. Like, he's, he, he's a master. He's introducing them to a little bit of, like, this is what they're doing. What y'all doing? Check it out. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. So what you're going to see as we go through this passage, it's all got a crescendo in one little line in chapter 9 where God uses this phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. And LT says, for God loves a person who gives generously. And 
over and over and over as Paul like starts with the Macedonians and shows the Corinthians what the Macedonians are doing. He's going to point to their heart, not to the total amount. Like he's not going to talk about the cash amount. He's just going to point to their heart. He says they were filled with abundant joy, which overflowed into rich generosity. He's saying they were motivated out of straight joy. And then he does what only the Apostle Paul could do. He, he flips down verse 8. He says, I am not commanding you to do this, speaking to the Corinthians with his Give Hope campaign, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it to the eagerness of the other churches. Like, so this is what the Macedonians are doing. What y'all doing? And, and he's not saying, like, we're going to have a competition who could raise the most money. He's saying, like, where's your heart in the matter? They're doing this with abundant joy. He says, I'm testing your genuine love, which is, is uh, strong, difficult to read, hard for me to examine my own heart. After years and years of discipline, which I do not regret, right, from a generosity standpoint, as I read these passages again, and I love these chapters, I've read them many times. They washed over me again. I've just been asking myself, man, have I slid? Is generosity still bringing me joy? Am I slowing down enough to align my heart with generosity so that I moved into a cheerful giver? And then... Paul does what he always does. He takes it to Jesus. Verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. What an amazing verse. Let me read it to you again. J.R. Packer, who is... A pretty famous theologian, you may not have heard of him. He wrote a book called Knowing God. You want like a classic to put on your shelf. You buy Knowing God. It'll take you a while to read it, little piece by piece. Um, but he says that this is the core text for Christmas. The theological or doctrinal word would be the incarnation, where God the Son becomes a man in the form of a baby. We call Jesus, right? Like, so he, this is the core verse that captures the gospel that was presented at the incarnation. And, and actually, J.I. Packer said this verse in 2 Corinthians, which I think is really interesting that he drops it in the middle of these two chapters on generosity. He actually demonstrates with Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the ultimate generous act. So he says, I'll read it to you one more time. You know the generous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. So have you ever thought about how rich Jesus is, the Son of God? In the Old Testament, the psalmist would say he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? That don't mean nothing to y'all. But back in the day, you got a bunch of cattle on a bunch of hills. You rich, right? That means steak every night. That's what that means. Like, you never lacking for a meal. Steak and eggs, you know, steak sandwich, and steak and potatoes for supper. Like, you got steak all you want. Cattle on a thousand years. It was just the ultimate way to say that he was never, ever in need. That's how rich 
the son of God is. The psalmist also said that he was the king of glory. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. There's a bunch of gospel songs that have king of glory in them. I wish I could play you one right now. Like, it, it just when you hold God to the king of glory, there was never a moment since the day he created the angels that he was not worshiped. Any created being in his presence has to bow down and worship him and call him great. He's the king of glory. So Jesus was straight rich. Hebrews chapter 1, if you want to read it sometime, it's another book in the New Testament. It says he was the heir of all things. You know, like we got heirs and heiresses, and they make documentaries about them and how they blew it or, or multiplied their riches. We talk about the heir of all things. It says he's the heir of all things. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1. He's rich. Don't need to say any more. But the passage says that though he was rich, he became poor. How poor? I hate to tell you this since you are a fellow human being. It was a major step down for the Son of God to join us as human beings. And for that matter, he joined us as not just a human being but as a baby, a helpless Baby, I see one right over here being super quiet. Amazing. I hope I don't jinx you. But like this, this is, this is uh, uh, he joined us as a baby, helpless, in need of everything. Not only joined us as a baby, he joined us as a Jewish baby. I don't know if y'all follow the news, but being Jewish isn't exactly the best thing to be all the time. As a nation that was hated by most of the world, Jesus joined us as a Jewish baby, on purpose, as a Galilean Jewish baby. The Galileans were made fun of by the Jews. They were always connected to the Gentiles because they were so close to the Gentiles. And so they, they were lowly among the Jews. And the list goes on, doesn't it? His mom and dad were the poor, poor. When they came to make a sacrifice, they had to bring a turtle dove. That's all they could afford. He was born in stable, as you know. We make it look Beautiful and quaint, probably stank. He was born in a manger. I don't know what you think of donkeys. I never want to be in a place where the donkeys eat, right? That's what the rich son of God, that's how he made himself poor. We ain't even talked about the cross yet, right? The way that he died. I'm fascinated with this one moment right before he goes to the cross when he decides with the, the soldiers, 200 or so, that come to arrest him, he flashes his glory. Just for one second, I can't help but think of Superman. He, like, just flashes that he's the king of glory. And what happens to the 200 soldiers? Fall on their backs. They drop. <laughs> they're armed and ready to arrest him. He goes, let me show you. And they're down. On their backs. And then what's amazing is they get up and arrest him after he does that. So what is he doing? He's rich. He shows it just for a second. But he's become poor. And he allows these men, all he's got to do is flash his glory and put them on their backs. He allows them to mock him and persecute. I don't know about you, but it's really hard for me to allow somebody to say one negative word to me. The king of glory became poor. He suffered all the indignities that came before the cross. And then he hung on the cross. We talk about that a ton. 
We talk a ton about the suffering of the cross. The Persians developed the cross 600 years prior. The Romans took it on as their ultimate form of capital punishment, the punishment which they thought they could make the human body suffer the most. Talk about poor. Many have written about this separation between God the Son and God the Father that had not happened in all eternity. You talk about a move from rich to poor. The Son is now not welcome in the Father's community because of your sin and my sin. We don't talk enough, though, about Jesus hanging on that cross for three hours of utter hell as he takes on your sin and takes the wrath of the Father on himself, which we, we can't even comprehend, takes the wrath of the Father on himself on our behalves. You talk about going from rich to poor. There can't be a greater chasm. Why? Why did Jesus go from rich to poor? What does the passage say? says it real simply, yet for your sakes, like for me and you. The reason he went from rich to poor, he says, for your sakes, he loved you. He loved you. You're like, bro, you don't know me. No, I, I, I don't know you, but he knows you. And the scripture says, like, nobody in this room is excluded. I don't know what you've done or who you are, where you come from, but he loved you. It's for your sakes that he went from Rich, 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 rich to poor, 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 poor. So that, what's it say? So that you could be rich. <laughs> That's good news. J.I. Packer, who is uh, this theologian that I told you about, he wrote this paragraph. I can't say it near as well. I don't read great, so you can read from the screen. We'll read it together. And just try to soak it in. It's so good for me to read this week. We see now what it meant for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor. It meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under this prospect of it all. It meant love to the uttermost for the unlovely human beings that they, through his poverty, might become rich. The Christian message is that there is hope for all of ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor, it was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or ever will hear. Amen. And then Packer says this. The Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like the master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent, to enrich their fellow humans. What a lot. So, 
in the middle of two chapters where the Apostle Paul is giving his give hope speech to the Corinthians. He used the Macedonians as an example, and then he takes the ultimate example of Jesus, and he goes, this is what Jesus is all about. He was rich, and he became poor so that you could have. He was generous. So he, he asked the Corinthians, you do the same. He does it in a variety of ways. In the next couple of verses, he entreats them to give eagerly, kind of like Jesus did. And in chapter 9, really, the more famous of these verses, starting in verse 6, he coaches on, on, for me and you on what it would look like to be a cheerful giver. He just gives us precise coaching, which is helpful and hard and good all at the same time. Let me read it to you. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need, and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Really, Somewhat simple verses that all point to this idea of you and I being a cheerful giver. And it makes this bold statement. The only bold statement in there is that God loves a cheerful giver. So then how do you become a cheerful giver? Well, he says one way not to become a cheerful giver is to sow sparingly. NLT says plant only a few seeds. To sow sparingly. As a matter of fact, in the verses before, he says, folks, give based on what they don't have. What's that mean? <laughs> that means when I'm deciding to be generous, I'm thinking about what I could buy with it. <laughs> right? Like what I could have. Like some folks give based on what they don't have. Instead, he says, plant generously, which would mean you give based on what you do have, which really begins to make you align with God and appreciate what you already have and manage those longings for more. And so he says, man, if you're going to be generous, he says, so bountifully. That's what it looks like to be a cheerful giver. It really seems quite impossible to sow sparingly and be cheerful about it because you're so worried about what else you need. And then he makes a couple pretty simple but great statements. You must... Each decide in your heart. I've thought about that a thousand times as I've thought about my personal generosity. I love this passage. I've always thought about it. I've never really focused on the word heart until I focused on the word cheerful. So when I looked at cheerful giver, God loves a cheerful giver, all of a sudden that line when I read it, somebody must purpose in their heart what to give. It really made me question how have I been giving? Because I think at times I decide in my mind. I make a decision in my mind. And my mind generally is concerned about lots of things. And so it's a very, I don't know if you could ever call my mind intellectual, but it's an intellectual decision. Like I'm, I'm working out the numbers. And he says, when you decide, decide in your Let your heart drive this thing. What troubles me 
about how the church has handled this subject for so long is that we, we don't trust the heart of believers in Jesus. We trust our minds. So we're way more comfortable giving them a law and driving them to a law because then at least we'll meet budget. That is, that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying, and that is not what the New Testament represents. It's not arguing against discipline, right? As a matter of fact, I think you can make a real strong argument for discipline and generosity. He's just saying every time, do the work to get your heart aligned. He says, don't do it reluctantly. Man, the Greek there, I don't do the Greek a lot, but this is just too good. <laughs> the Greek for not reluctantly is from grief. <laughs> I'm giving from grief. It is that painful for me. It's like a death when I give up my stuff. Don't give from grief. In other words, get your heart aligned where this doesn't grieve you so deeply. It can be a sacrifice. It doesn't mean that it has to be straight fun. Give one, give for fun. But it, it does mean that you have to move your heart to a place of joy. And then, next line's equally as good, or in response to pressure. Maybe some of y'all grew up in a church where the dude up here is sweating pretty hard, and he's pressuring you. He, like, he locks the doors, like, chain the doors. We ain't leaving here until we, we pay for this building or whatever. Like, don't give to that. Like, get a bolt cutter. Cut the chains. Let's get out of here. Like, he's saying don't give because of pressure. We do that in a variety of ways. One, because you got a master manipulator on the mic who just seems like his thing's all about money. And I'm sorry if you suffered through that. Hopefully you were bold enough to walk away. He said, don't do that. Don't do it to avoid punishment. Seems many are motivated, like, with generosity to avoid some sort of punishment, maybe some sort of superstition, like little Jimmy's going to get a hit in the ball game today because I gave today. That, that ain't how it works. I'm sorry. Don't give it because you're wondering what somebody else in the room thinks about your giving. Don't do it for the praise of men. He's, he's redefining what this thing would look like, which is why we're supposed to be the most generous people on the planet. Because we're full of joy because our master demonstrated great joy. So he, he puts in some of these things you don't do and some things that you do. And it is, it is uh, really what formed how we do stuff at Radius. Like That's why there's those boxes in the back because we're really nervous that passing the plate that you would be worried about what the person on your row would think, and you'd throw a 20 in there because you, you were being pressured because, you know, Fred down the aisle, he put 20 in, I got to put 20 in, and that there'd be this thing of pressure. And like, that, well, you're just wasting your money, and we're wasting your time. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than something that's done under compulsion. And so we did that, but in the process, one of the things that I did, and I failed us in that way, I just tried not to talk about it. I didn't want to be associated with chaining the doors. Sadly, man, as I read this passage, I, I wish I had talked about it for years because it's connected directly to the glory of God. Like generosity, human generosity, you can't read this passage and not connect it directly to bringing glory to God. Does God need more glory? No, he's all glory. But it gives us the opportunity to, to expose his great glory. And generosity seems to be this straight path when it's done cheerfully to bringing him glory. So God loves a cheerful giver. 
Does he love you? Oh, let's be careful with that now. Get a little crazy with that. Yeah, he loves you. All right? He loves sinners, the Bible teaches us. He loves folks who rebel against him. He loves, he loves all, actually, the Bible would teach us. And matter of fact, he saved a bunch of people in here that were rebellious to him. I'm one of them. So he loves us. There's two kind of ways that love is viewed in the New Testament. One is that he does good to. Does good to all of us. God loves everybody in this room. But what does it mean when he says God loves a cheerful giver? He delights in it. He loves you no matter who you are. But when you're a cheerful giver, he delights in it. He, he's glorified by it. When he sees a cheerful giver, he goes, that looks like my son. And I'm so proud of my son. I'm so honored by my son. That looks like my son. And it brings him glory because that's how he designed. God is love. And so it's just natural for him to be generous and good to folks. So, such a good reminder for those of us who have been walking with him for a long time. Just slow down and ask this question, am I still a cheerful giver? Man, if you're brand new to the faith, I would just go, man, welcome. You probably got some stuff going on because he's just transformed you. You're like, life's good. Man, ride that. It ought to lead you to generosity. That'll lead you to want to share in your stuff because that's what he did. And for some of y'all in here that cannot figure out Christians or Radius Church, I hope you take note. There's a lot of folks in here, they live generously and they do it because of who he is. That's what it, he changed us. And it's what we hope would have you trust us and have you listen to the gospel. Verse 8, and I'll quit with that. It's an interesting verse. After he says, God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God loves the cheerful giver. And God will generously provide all you need, and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. What does that mean? Does that mean if, you know, I give away the Suburban that I got out in the parking lot, I get a new one? If that was true, there'd be a lot of cars given away today. Right? Like, that's, that's not what it means. I can prove that with my life. Like, you give 10, don't necessarily get 100 back. That's not what this is teaching, though some would say, to their shame. But it does say something. It doesn't say nothing. Read it again. God will generously provide all you need. Did you catch that word, need? Like, folks that are generous, he says, I'll provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I'll give you some, and I'll give you enough margin so you can do this again. Because what? God's about his glory. He's all glorious. He's always supporting who he is. He's all glorious. It ain't like he's selfish or, or full of it. He's naturally all glory. So the greatest thing he can do is bring himself glory. And one of the ways he does it is when you give, he trusts you with something else, and you get to give again. And some of us have more, and some of us have less, and we can be generous exactly where part of the passage actually speaks to that. Some of us can give small amounts of money because we have small amounts of money. Some of us can give large amounts of money because we have large amounts of money. He says, he does that for his glory. Matter of fact, that passage seems to indicate that we are proving when we're generous that we're dependent on him and that we know 
that the stuff, the income, the stuff of value that we have came from him. We make this statement about him being the providing God. We're willing to share it with others. We look like him, and we worship him as the provider. And in reality, as he was delighted in us, as a cheerful giver, we delight in him. We love him. We show him glory. I hope that as we go through this passage and you get ready to take bread and juice, like you really are going to do the time before you come take bread and juice and recognize Jesus as the cheerful giver, right? Like, take this slow if you got to. Get to the point where you recognize how rich he was and how poor he became. Why? Because of you. Because he wanted to make you rich. I hope when you get up and walk down and take bread and juice or walk to the back and take bread and juice, as you walk, you recognize how rich you are. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, I do know you. Like, I'm one of you. Like, I was made righteous by the blood and body of Jesus Christ. It's completely transformed my existence. He calls me a joint heir with the Son of God. The Bible calls me. I'm going to inherit the inheritance that he inherits. Because of his work on the cross, I didn't do anything to deserve it. He loved me. And so when I walk down because I believed and to participate in this moment, I'm celebrating the cheerful giver, Jesus. And so the response is gratitude. I, I can't, I want to do this because I want to show him gratitude. This is what he asked me to do. And then it causes this thing inside me to examine my stuff, everything I have. I have to open up my hands and say, what do you, what do you want with this? I want to determine in my heart before you, God, what you want me to do with this to your glory. Man, I didn't expect to be quite this quiet this morning, <clears throat> but it is. It's funny how this subject gets right to us. Let it get to you. Praise God. I'm glad we're talking about it. Get to us. So there's this need, deep need, even as I just wrestle with my own self. This life is so good when connected to Jesus and walking like him. I never want to get away from enjoying it. In the process, by being a cheerful giver, I can both give him glory and bring myself joy. And perhaps over the Christmas holidays, we might stand out as folks full of joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great generosity to us. Jesus, we speak to you. We just say thank you, Jesus, for humbling yourself and becoming one of us. We thank you for your willingness to allow your creation to persecute you. Well, we already said it, Lord. You became so poor. Thank you. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Thank you for the day many of us believed where we became rich 
Oui. And now related to you and the Father and the Holy Spirit, which blows our minds. So thank you, Jesus, for doing what we could never do. Lord, as we examine our hearts, Lord, it's one of the things I love about this church. We will slow down and we'll just look at our hearts. Meet us in these moments. Help us look good at our hearts. We want to align with you, Jesus. Even as we go into this Christmas season, Lord, we want, we really want to celebrate you and we want to love the people around us. Use these few minutes to get us ready for us. Listen to us sing, Lord. Meet us as we take your, meet you at your table in Jesus' name. Amen.